knowing you, Brian, I know that you know this one and you've probably spent many, many thousands of dollars on this one. Care Bears. Oh, now you've, you've just touched my heart and warmed it. <laughs> Brian is sitting in Brian is sitting in a house full of Care Bears. There are thousands of Care Bears behind him all staring at me right now. I'm a fluffy. What can I say? But maybe Care Bears are still super popular. We don't really know. Are they? I, yeah. You see, I've been out of the Care Bear loop for a long time. Although I did see an episode of Pawn Stars where someone was selling a collection of Care Bears for a lot of money. So I guess there's also that Care Bear community out there who might actually care about these bears. When you say someone was selling them for a lot of money, are you just referring to yourself in the third person? I played the fifth. Bogdan, Brian, and their guests are not registered investment advisors. Nothing discussed today should be relied on for investment decisions, nor is it investment advice. This show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please work directly with an investment professional. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Safari podcast, where we prowl the dark DeFi undergrowth lurking in the shadows, waiting to pounce on those underseen, undervalued crypto coins. My name is Bogdan, and as always here, I have Brian. How's it going, Brian? Guten Tag, Herr Bogdan. Ah, guten Tag, Brian. I should have done it in, in that accent the entire time. <laughs> you should have. You should have. It's okay, though, man. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. No worries. Missed opportunities. So, uh, I am super excited for our episode this week because we have two really good listener questions, which I'm excited to dive into. And then I have some fun crypto news. So shall we dive into crypto news? What do you have for us? Let's dive into the deep end. Well, I've got some, some crypto news, just some normal news, but uh, I don't know. For me, I think the news of the last couple of weeks is the whole Twitter Elon Musk saga that's going on. Ah. We talked about that a little bit and there's been some developments this week. I'm not sure if you've been following the whole. I story. have not. Can you explain first what the saga is and then yeah. also what's going on? So the saga began about maybe two and a half, three weeks ago, Elon Musk, the world's richest man. He's basically Tony Stark. Let's be honest. He's, he's like Iron Man. He decided to buy a, well, the largest stake in Twitter, which I think was about, um, how much did he, was it 9 billion? Or how much did he put in the first round? I think it was nine. No, he had a nine, sorry, it was a 9, 9.2% stake he bought, worth about $3 billion, made him the largest shareholder. And his idea was that Twitter is broken. We need to make some changes. And as a majority shareholder, he can have some important influence on that. And for anybody who, might understand the whole Twitter is broken comment has to do with the censoring, the bots. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically lack of free speech. Free speech is limited. It's based on what they decide is okay. And so that's not really free speech. And so he bought that, uh, that amount of shares in the company, hoping to control it. They offered him a seat of the board, which also would limit the, uh, the shares he could buy further after that, limiting him. He denied it, he, well, declined it, excuse me. And then he made an offer to buy the company for, I think, about twice as much as it's worth. Really? Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So he doubled up. He's like, listen, I'll give you this much money. Uh, it's twice as much as the shares are worth. And they said no. And Twitter basically swallowed what's called a poison pill. Mm. And a poison pill basically limits um, a hostile takeover. And it allowed shareholders to have a period of time where they can buy more shares, diluting Elon Musk's stake in the company and prevent him from taking further action. Interesting. Which is very interesting because at the same time, if you're talking about someone who's giving you an offer twice as much as what the company is valued, basically, then the board of directors has a fiduciary duty to the shareholders to consider it and say, listen, we can make these guys a lot of money. We should maybe take the offer, at least consider it. But they were just, no, right off the bat, pretty much. And so that was kind of weird, you know, to begin with. So Elon Musk went back and he said, all right, well, I'm just going to you know, think about my next move. And his next move was basically to raise money to present a tender offer for the company. And the tender offer basically says, listen, we're going to go around the board and offer this to the shareholders. And for a limited time, they have to, they can accept this offer. Mm. That was his next move. And so he raised uh, 46.5 billion to nice. buy the company outright and, and take it private. And so he raised some money from other um, financial institutions and he was going to put up some Tesla stock to back that. And we'll see what's going on. And nothing's really happened since then. It, it could work out. It seems like Jack Dorsey is also kind of like pro Elon Musk takeover. He had a lot of issues with the board. But anyway, so one of the things he's talking about doing is basically uh, making sure that every, every person on Twitter is a real human. Oh, okay. So the problem with Twitter is with all the bots. And I'm not a big Twitter guy. You probably know more, but apparently that's a huge issue. I can tell you, yeah, I can tell you firsthand something is happening. I, I don't understand Twitter fully, but I'm on Twitter. I use it uh, maybe once a week. And every single day I get like at least 10 tweets that have tagged me with nothing. There's no text in it. They're just tagging me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I know that these are bots. But I'm like, why, why are you just tagging me arbitrarily with a bunch of other people and yeah. these random things? So the bots are really out of control. It's almost the equivalent of like getting spam calls. I yeah. wake up in the morning and I have like six different Twitter mentions that have nothing to do with anything I'm interested in. See, that's, that's BS because this is all, it's supposed to be about people retweeting things that are important. Like that's kind of their metrics for, you know, saying this, this is something that we should look at. This is something that's important. This person has a lot of followers. They should have a, a, a bigger platform. I mean, that, that's kind of what the basis is for the whole thing is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, for people who aren't familiar, Twitter is kind of the social network of choice for all crypto and NFT talk, all Web3 talk. So it's not a very user-friendly space. Like it's kind of gotten out of hand. I equate it kind of to a garden that used to be beautiful, but then you left it for six months and it's just weeds growing everywhere. So the initial plants are there, but they're just covered up in all this, like all these weeds, all this garbage. Oh yeah. All this fluff. And you know, that's not sustainable. And so that's one of the things that Elon Musk has been talking about this last week is just trying to end that. And so he's trying to get in, trying to change things and he's trying to kill these bots. So that's, that's kind of a big deal. I'm all for it. Next thing. So remember we talked about the Axie hack yes. uh, last week on the Ronin chain. So there's been some interesting developments on that. Have you been reading about it? I have not. All right. Well, first on that list is Binance has recovered $5.8 million 
from the hack. How big was the hack initially? 600 million. 600 million? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a big one. It was a big one. So yeah, Binance recovers 5.8 million. Not a big deal, kind of a drop in the bucket. But the point is, it, it's being tracked. They know where these wallets are going. They're seeing this money move. But in addition to that, uh, the U.S. government has started freezing wallets that are associated with that hack because they happen to be connected to a North Korean hacking group called Lazarus. Whoa, interesting. So Lazarus, according to the FBI, was behind that Axie Infinity hack. Interesting. So North Korea is hacking Axie Infinity. Wow. North Korea is, uh, they're, yeah, they're hacking probably a lot of things, but th this is their latest, uh, well, alleged uh, hack. And so they've been tracking all of these different wallets. And so they saw some um, ETH transferred from the original wallet they used to store the money, the sort of the crypto they hacked, getting transferred to these uh, wallets associated with Lazarus. And they then being laundered through a, a different site called, uh, where is it? Uh, you might have heard of it, uh, Tornado Cash. I have not heard of it. The Tornado Cash is basically a way of hiding and laundering money, laundering crypto, excuse me, through this site that basically breaks it up into a bunch of transactions, moves it around, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, it's hard to track. Kind of like throwing money into a tornado. Exactly. Well, there you go. And Monero is another one of those uh, type of uh, platforms that does that as well. So they're starting to track these wallets and sanction them because they happen to be connected with Axie Infinity Hack, which has been connected to a North Korean hacker group. Interesting. Isn't it interesting how decentralized finance isn't immune to big governments being able to track you down and take your stuff? So in this case, they're doing it in a benevolent way, right? They're trying to recover people's funds that have been stolen. But you can imagine that if there is a totalitarian government trying to lock things down, that it's probably it probably also can do something similar. That's been the uh, the topic, you know, a lot, especially since the Ukrainian and Russian conflict, when they started sanctioning Russian wallets and a lot of these uh, decentralized exchanges, well, sorry, centralized exchanges were kind of hesitant. But at the same time, if you're uh, incorporated in this country and you're subject to their laws, you don't really have a choice. And so that's kind of, uh, it's been a reason that people are saying get off centralized exchanges. But even if you do, you can still track these wallets. You can see where the money goes. And I wouldn't even really say, I mean, I don't think it's, in this case, it's that benevolent. benevolent. The FBI is trying to basically sanction North Korea. I don't think they're worried so much about getting people's money back. They're just worried about that money going to North Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yep. And uh, what else we got here? Oh, this is a good one. You like this. So you're familiar with Ridley Scott, the director. Yeah, me and Ridley. We go way back. You know, well, actually, we do. I mean, think about all the movies you saw that he directed. I mean, Blade Runner, um, Alien, Gladiator. Like, I feel like I grew up on his movies. He's a great yep. director. Anyway, so he's doing a movie about Ethereum. Oh, interesting. Like yeah, the founding uh, story of Ethereum, or what? What's it going to be about? Is it the founding story of Ethereum, or what's it going to be about? Yeah, it's a founding story of Ethereum. It's based on a book by Camilla Russo, and the book was called The Infinite Machine. And it's a, basically a biography or biography, yeah, a documentary, I don't know, that tells the story of the development of Ethereum and its impact on the world. And, the, you know, and basically saying this is the, one of the biggest, um, uh, you know, inventions since the, the Internet. 
you know, comparing on that level in terms of its impact on what it means for society, for technology, for the way we live. And so she wrote this book. I haven't read it yet, but I have to read it now. It's a bestseller. Anyway, so they partnered up and now they're going to be doing a movie on Ethereum, which sounds awesome. That's very cool. I I would love to watch the movie, actually, because Ridley Scott tends to do a really good job with, uh, you know, these kind of like sci-fi new age topics. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, when it comes out, we'll go see it in the theater. How about that? We should. We should. IMAX. Yes. Uh, that's all I got for today. Just a couple of stories. Why don't you uh, tell me what you've learned this week? Sure. So for me, my favorite one of the stories that I have has to do with Moonbirds. And I believe you and I talked about Moonbirds. It is Kevin Rose's NFT project, which, uh, you know, I wanted to get into it. I missed the kind of private uh, registration period. So I was going to buy a Moonbird on the secondary market. But let me tell you what has happened to Moonbirds since (laughs) it launched. Oh, no. All right, lay it on me. Moonbirds, an NFT project, raised $280 million in two days. Holy smokes. Are you serious? Can you imagine? So this is what's crazy. Kevin Rose, he's a big influencer in the crypto space. I recommend his podcast all the time, both uh, his podcast Proof and his podcast Modern Finance. And so this is his second NFT that he's creating. And he got a bunch of his friends in on it too, who are also, you know, big influencers. The thing is like, they didn't expect it to blow up as big as it has. So the initial mint price was 2.5 Ethereum. So if you're on this list, you could buy it for 2.5 Ethereum. As soon as it minted, uh, the secondary price was eight Ethereum which is about $24,000. So it's like, oh, like I really, 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 I believe in Kevin Rose. I think he's a great entrepreneur. I followed him for over a decade now and I wanted a Moonbird so badly. And I was ready to drop the 2.5 Ethereum on this NFT, couldn't get it. No way could I afford the eight Ethereum uh, price tag. Do you know what the current price is right now? Oh, man. I'm afraid to ask, but go ahead. I'm not even going to guess. 35 Ethereum, which is $100,000. Meaning if I had dropped the 8 Ethereum and paid $24,000, I would now have $100,000. Where else can you get that sort of return on investment? In two days. In two days. (laughs) All of us are working here, working hard, slaving away, you know, uh, selling our lives to the man. And instead we could have just bought a digital bird. Oh. So I wanted to tell you that so that we could both cry together and shed some tears. Well, to all honesty, I actually got five moon birds. So, Oh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course not. I mean, that would be amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd be like, uh, I'm done. There, there are people. So, so I think the lesson here is not so much like, Oh, ha ha. Other people made a bunch of money. We didn't make money. I think the important lesson here is sometimes it's important to follow your gut. So when Kevin Rose first came out with an NFT, like I said, I've been following him for over a decade. And his first NFT was just one Ethereum, which is $3,000, right? That's a lot of money. But now in hindsight, I'm thinking, oh my God, like that was a bargain. And his initial NFT is worth even more than the Moonbird. So right now uh, that one Ethereum NFT 
is now worth $250,000. And I should have followed my gut on this. I should have just believed, had conviction and just jumped in rather than saying, ah, you know, not sure. And here's the thing. If you had bought that first NFT, you qualified to get two Moonbirds. So it's not just losing out of the, that, that, the value of the first one, but it's also the value of the second one times two. Well, yeah. you know, hey, man, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You believe in the project. Go with your gut. Yes. You know what? Things happen. You, sometimes you miss the train. There's always another train after that. There is. And so my, my lesson here is I will jump on the next train of someone who I know, right, the team. If I know the team, I followed the team for decades. I know these people, I know how successful they are at whatever they attempt, like jump in if, if you have all that like insider information. So I'm kicking myself and I'm going to jump in on the next train. I want you to say it again. Say it again? You're going to jump in the next one. You got to reaffirm that. I will jump on the next train and ride it to wherever it goes. You heard that, listeners. That is a binding contract from Bogdan. He is making a statement here that we're going to hold him to. So next time we do a, a show and he's sitting there talking about, oh, I missed this one too. I want everybody to write us and and, and metaphorically kick him in his, his Jimmy. <laughs> yes, I will hop on that next train. Choo-choo. There it is. I will. I will go. All right. Next piece of news is... Uh, intriguing. I think that you might have questions about this one. This is about how Solana launched a new protocol called Hedge. Have you heard about this? Hedge? No, no, I didn't see it on the roadmap. Tell so me. Hedge will allow people to borrow uh, money for 0% interest. So it offers instant interest-free loans in its stable, co- stable coin called USH. And the borrowers only need to deposit 10% of the total value desired to receive a loan. So you put 10% down, you get a loan in a stable coin. Yep. What is the, what's the VIG? What's the interest you pay? That is what I was, so 0% interest. Wait, zero percent interest. So wait, what's okay? Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I knew you would. I knew you. I would. think I missed that when you said that. Maybe my mind didn't didn't compute zero percent interest. So, what's the? Uh, there's something we're missing here. What, what's what the catch? Yeah. I'm trying to figure that out. So so far, there haven't been too many details about this, other than the announcement. Solana has funded it for several hundred million dollars. And the CEO of Hedge, uh, his name is Sebastian Grubb, shared that only 20% of Solana coins are currently locked into DeFi projects. So meaning most people hold their Solana tokens in their wallets and they're not really using them in the ecosystem. So the reason they're incentivizing people to lock up their Solana and get loans for them at 0% interest is really to incentivize people to start using their Solana in the ecosystem. So yeah. that's their motivation for giving you such yeah. a good deal. Yeah, it's a TVL play. I, I, we're seeing a lot of uh, tokens, projects do this as well. Except it's very competitive right now, let's be honest. There's a lot of projects out there and it's a, I wouldn't say a zero sum game, but if you're not doing this, then you're not doing that, you know, so, which I guess, you know, is a zero sum game. And so I think, you know, when projects do this, they're just really saying like, we want to get more people bought into the ecosystem long-term. 
Yeah. I think that's a good play because you think about all the volatility we're seeing in, in these markets, it has to do with people just jumping from one project to the other, taking advantage of some short-term gain here, some short-term gain there. And, you know, in terms of long-term, that's not a good way to build a, st a stable market. And so I think by sacrificing a little bit of, uh, you know, let's give you this to get something back more long-term, I think that's smart. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's a, uh, your thought? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to, I, I might try it out with, you know, like a, a sole token or maybe two, like something small, you know, 60 bucks, a hundred bucks, just to see what happens and to see how it works. Uh, but I think that it's a interesting idea in terms of getting people to use Solana tokens for actual utility, as opposed to everyone just hoarding them and just speculating on it going up in value. So we, we will see what happens there. Um, the next little- One second, they're really quick here. So the utility is basically, instead of holding my wallet, I stake it on their platform and then I- You get a loan. You get a loan. So let's say I don't want a loan. So where's the incentive to, to stake? If I'm not in, if I have no desire to get a loan, I don't need the money. I'm, I'm still not seeing the real connection between like getting people to do something if they don't really need to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, so th this is for people who want to hold on to their Solana tokens. They want more liquidity so that they can invest in other things. So it's similar to that previous DeFi project I told you about where you can put in your tokens, get a loan, go do stuff with that loan, make more money come back, get your initial investment back. So something like that. You can obviously stake Solana uh, if you just want to stake it and get interest on it. So this is just another vehicle to encourage the use of Solana. I see what you're saying. So it's basically what we talked about in terms of, you know, rich people, wealthy people borrowing against their assets and never selling anything really. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So uh, last bit of news here is Coinbase has officially launched their NFT marketplace and it is in beta. So they are also trying to incentivize people to use the Coinbase NFT marketplace. And so for a limited time, there will be no transaction fees. So after this beta is over, the transaction fees will go to, they say, low single digit fee. So very small fee. I think they're going to try and compete with OpenSea, which I'm hoping will encourage OpenSea to kind of step up its game as well. Yeah, OpenSea, we talked about this a lot. You know, they've had their, their issues. I mean, at the same time, wouldn't you rather see them basically maybe go away if there's a better platform? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mind if OpenSea improves their platform. And I think in order for them to improve their platform, they need to have more competition. There, it doesn't make sense to me why OpenSea is dominating something that is such a valuable you know, economy. Right, especially when they're doing a bad job of uh, facilitating that domination. And it's not that they're terrible. I want to make it clear. Like OpenSea is not a terrible platform. It's just like, there's little clunky things where it's like, come on, like you have all this money from all these transaction fees that people are, that you're charging people, like make this better, faster. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're just not, um, they're not reinvesting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that is the Coinbase NFT marketplace. They're saying that it will be available to all users in the coming weeks. So soon, all of us can try using the NFT marketplace. You have a Coinbase market, uh, account, right? 
I do have a Coinbase account. Yep. Yeah, so do I. I don't really use it that much anymore, but uh, I might I might buy an NFT. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Coinbase is improving at a very rapid rate. Um, so it used to be that they had Coinbase and Coinbase Pro, and you had to keep switching between the two platforms. Mm-hmm. Now they've made it much easier. They've added staking with really good APY rates. Um, they have uh, where you can like use a crypto wallet directly in Coinbase, the Coinbase wallet. So mm-hmm. I love that they're like continuously developing and moving fast. Yeah, you know, I like the company. I like what they're doing. Uh, I have a Coinbase wallet. And actually, I think I applied for a job as a designer, a product designer at Coinbase. And so, yeah, I'd work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So that's it for the news. Let's jump into listener questions. And I'm really excited to hear your opinion on these. So our first listener question here is from Xander. Xander asks, how do you think the upcoming Ethereum update will affect other cryptocurrencies? So for those who aren't familiar, Ethereum is going to be upgrading to Ethereum 2.0, where they're switching from a proof of work system to a proof of stake system, which means that it will be 99% more energy efficient. Transactions will be faster and easier to do. Uh, Gas fees will still be pretty high, but not nearly as high as before. So how do you think this is going to affect the other cryptocurrencies, Bri? Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've talked about this and... I hate to say we'll see, but in a lot of ways, we'll see. I mean, what's your prediction? What's your prediction? Because as someone who has invested in crypto markets, yeah, we'll see is a very risky strategy to take, right? Well, I guess in terms of you know, how much you want to hold, how much you want to sell, maybe that's risky. I think Ethereum is always going to be, you know, number two in this market, you know, behind Bitcoin. Will it? diminish other projects will people leave other projects that's the we'll see part because we talked about this as well some people want to be in other projects because they feel like it's easier to use it as a developer some people don't want to learn solidity which is ethereum's uh, programming language and they're already bought into polka dot um solana or any other of these blockchains cardano and so they're comfortable there they're happy there so i guess the question is will developers leave their current preference blockchain to, to focus more on Ethereum, that's the thing we'll see. So I think that really the play isn't necessarily about um, adoption and price. I think the price will definitely go up, especially as transaction costs go down. But I think the bigger long-term thing is thinking about what platform do developers want to use? You know, And so are people going to just say, oh, well, okay, I'm taking off from Cardano, from Polkadot to Ethereum, Will that happen? I don't know. If they're already locked into this other this other chain, they understand the the programming language. They like what they're doing there. They like all the benefits. I don't know. I don't. I don't really see that a lot of like migration from these other standalone blockchains into Ethereum just because it's going to be a little bit cheaper. But once again, I'm not a developer. Yeah. So yeah. I I still think Ethereum is a, is a very strong long term play in terms of putting money into it. I think eventually it's going to have these price valuations. It could be maybe not close to Bitcoin, but I could see it tripling, quadrupling maybe the next couple of years. Yeah. Maybe that. So I think it's an investment. I think it's a good it's a good a good opportunity. But it's affecting other cryptocurrencies. That's the we'll see part because in the meantime, as Ethereum has 
been promising this 2.0, other crypto projects have been building out more robust, cheaper, more efficient blockchains that people are starting to love and being bought into. And the thing about it, it's sticky. You know, once you start developing on it, you, you get used to it, you like it, you like what they're doing, you're comfortable, you understand the language. Will people leave? I don't know. Gotcha. I don't know. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said in the time that Ethereum has taken to put out Ethereum 2.0, all these other platforms have shown up and have started evolving themselves. So for context, Ethereum 2.0 was supposed to come out like two years ago in 2020. Then it got delayed by a year. So they're like, okay, well, you know, like we're trying to be very diligent. And then it was supposed to come out 2021, got delayed again. It was supposed to come out June of this year. And now they're delaying it not by a year, but by another quarter. So think about this. I I appreciate that they're so diligent about it. The reason that's getting delayed is they're launching test environments of Ethereum to see how it's working and if everything makes sense. And they're finding bugs ahead of time. So rather than subjecting us, the users, to those bugs and us being the guinea pigs, they're testing it in a safe environment before they deploy. So I appreciate that. I don't fault them for it at all. But in the meantime, Solana, Avalanche, yeah, Polygon, all these other cryptocurrencies are developing even more. I, I totally agree, and and not only developing, but also developing, you know, very quickly and very um, innovatively. And so I think I, I would rather think of this Ethereum 2.0 necessarily how it's going to affect other cryptocurrencies, but how is it going to affect blockchain adoption outside of just this current market into organizations? who have been on the sidelines thinking maybe we should try to incorporate some blockchain technology into our current business model, but have been a little bit hesitant about certain things. So I think it's more about not affecting the cryptocurrency market, but saying allowing other um, you know, markets to get involved because they see Ethereum's you know, security, its efficiency, its, its lower of cost, lowering of cost now. And I think that's going to drive more adoption from entities that are not already invested in this market or don't already have a certain stake in the game as it will. So I think it's good for the whole crypto market, but not necessarily a detriment to other cryptocurrencies that already or other blockchains that have already been developing and growing uh, adoption through development, but maybe more of it spreading its tentacles out into areas that we haven't really seen yet. So I think it's good for the overall market. And I think it will bring in more adoption, more users, and more investment. And that's always good for everybody. The rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to put pressure on the Solana's avalanches, phantoms of the world to step it up even more. So I'm excited for that. Um, All right. Thank you, Xander. I love that that zinger of a question from you. Um, Our next question here is from Robin. She would like to know, how do I create my own NFT project? And what do you believe is the most important thing to make an NFT project successful? Mm. So do you want to take this one, Brian, or should I? You know, you're the NFT guy, but as far as I know, and this is my limited knowledge of it, I think you can buy like an instant NFT, like kind of package on Amazon. It's kind of like sea monkeys where you get the, uh, the powder, you get the water, you put it together, (laughs) you mix it up. And three days later, you've got an NFT. Is that, am I wrong? No, no, you're completely right. That is the way to do it. And we sell those uh, packages 
So make sure you buy one today, yeah, folks. And I have magic yeah. crypto beans too. I'll sell you for free. <laughs> I'll add them on to that. It grows Bitcoin. You just put water on the bean. Exactly. Put play on the backyard in a coffee can. So, you know, we, we actually, me and you have talked about uh, starting an NFT project last week, you know, and so I think you're the guy to fill this question. Yeah. So very good question, Robin. This is a question that I get asked all the time, and I honestly do not have a complete answer for it, but I will give you my incomplete answer to it, which is, I. so I've never created my own NFT. I'm working on learning so that I can create an NFT. But from what I understand from the people in my circles who I've talked to, basically to create an NFT, you only need to create like the art behind it. And then places like OpenSea kind of function like an Amazon marketplace. Mm -hmm. So you upload your artwork to it. You give it all the, you specify what the attributes of it are. And then it just goes up onto OpenSea and it's available if anyone wants to purchase it. I think the second part of your question is a lot more important, actually, which is what do you believe is the most important thing that makes an NFT project su successful? And from what I've seen across, you know, dozens of NFT projects I've participated in, been involved in, is that's community. So a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that the actual asset itself has value. And if you're, you know, if you just make something insanely gorgeous, maybe someone will buy it just for aesthetic reasons only. But the majority of projects that are successful, it's because they have a community behind them. So either you're already a famous artist or influencer, similar to like Kevin Rose or people who are already big in the art world, and then you automatically have a community behind you who will buy that NFT, or you have to grow that community. So that means creating a Discord server. It means partnering with other people in the NFT space, collaborating with others, and spending literally months, if not over a year, to create that community that believes in what you're doing. So it's much, much, much harder than it seems. Once you've created one NFT and you have that community, they might follow you to new NFT projects. But when you're just beginning, it's much harder. It's similar to kind of how in the early 2000s, everyone was trying to start a dot-com business and they thought, oh yeah, I just, I buy the website and there we go. I have users. No, yeah. that's not how it works. So you're saying it's not like starting a podcast. It's uh, in a way, the podcast is that discord server, right? You start it and then you have to bring people to it. Right. If you build it, they will come. Sometimes it doesn't really work. And let me ask another question too. Um, how much does scarcity play into when you're first starting to launch a project? Because obviously if something is limited, maybe people will want it that much more. Would you recommend uh, Robin, if she does create a project, start with a limited amount or in the beginning, if you want to grow the community, should you start with a lot? I think either way works and there are benefits and drawbacks to either one. So if you say I'm giving out 10,000 NFTs, it means you can price it really low. And you can still make a good amount of money off of it. So let's say that there are typically what you want to do is you want to have fewer NFTs than your community. So let's say that there are 8,000 people in your community on Discord. You probably want to put out 5,000 NFTs. You don't want to do 7,999, at least leave one person out. Well, that's assuming that everyone buys it. Right. In a lot of cases, they won't. So you want to always put out fewer than what your community than how big your community is. So if you have, for instance, like 
you know, 200 like super dedicated followers, then yes, you should put out an NFT that's 100 NFTs, right? Because mm-hmm. those people will want it and that will increase the price and the desirability. So it really depends, but always it's a supply demand thing. Right. And the big thing isn't the supply. The supply part of it's easy. You create your NFT. Demand. It's demand. Yeah. Would, would you recommend, well, how do you recommend, uh, you know, growing the community is obviously the biggest part. Do you have any tips, you know, and, and pointers? Like what, what I mean, I think one of the most important things is to have a niche of what are the types of people that you're trying to attract. So don't just create a piece of art, you know, that you're not sure who would want to be into it. So for instance, I recently joined an NFT community where it's uh, DJs and they're all really into music. So the utility of their NFT is you get free tickets to some of the biggest concerts in the world. Uh, if you're like a super duper awesome holder of that NFT, they will even pay your airfare and your hotel so that you can go to the concert, right? So it's like creating a community of people who really enjoy doing something and you're kind of creating this like ecosystem for them, perks for them. that are very specific to those people's interests. So yeah. that's the most important thing. Narrow your focus is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And speak to a crowd that you are a part of. So if you're not into motorcycles, don't go making like a motorcycle club NFT. If you're not into EDM music, don't go making an EDM music NFT because people will suss out that you're not true to the community. Yeah, yeah. that usually happens when, you know, you see people trying to, um, you know, glob onto a trend or something and they try to, you know, interject themselves into it without a lot of understanding the community. It, It really stands out. Yeah, I'll I'll give you a million dollar idea right here on this podcast, Brian, that I believe would work. Oh, all right. Listeners, turn up the volume. Robin, take down notes. Bogdan's about to drop some million dollar knowledge. Now, this might work for you, Robin. This might not. It depends if you're part of this community. I am baffled why no one has created a dog breed specific NFT meaning not an NFT for people who are dog owners, because that's very broad, but why don't we have like, like the, the wiener dog NFT and everybody in it has a wiener dog either in real life or aspires to have one and you get a little digital weenie and then you have little wiener meetups and you send them little wiener toys and like stuff that's- The wieners to make more wieners. Exactly, exactly. Like why has no one created- this type of NFT because people are so dedicated usually to the type of dog that they have, whether it's a Frenchie or a wiener or, or maybe Shiba Inu. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of that. There's a, it, the, the market is dominated by one dog breed and that's, that's the Shiba Inu. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, maybe that's, uh, that's maybe a smart play. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't own a dog. I love dogs, but uh, I think that's, a, I think it's a good idea. So basically what you're saying is in any community where people have a strong affinity and that's connected to their own identity, that's a place, if you are a part of that community that you could potentially create an NFT. Yes, exactly. And the more, uh, the more that community is part of the community's identity, whatever that product is, the better chance you have of being successful in the market. Exactly, exactly. So hopefully that answers your question, Robin. Uh, if you guys have any other questions for us, remember you can always submit them at our email address, which is questions at 
cryptosafari.us. And uh, we'll, we'll answer them on the next episode. We'll try. Honestly, I haven't checked the email in a while and I'm sure they're piling up. So we'll get to them. We will. Thank Bye. you guys for submitting them. Yeah, Robin, get a wiener dog. Start an NFT based on wieners and uh, call us when you're a millionaire. We'll have it in the show. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, let's jump into our tokens for this week. So uh, before we jump in, let's go over PTAC plus T. So this is how we evaluate any cryptocurrency, which is its purpose, the team behind it, what is its unique advantage, what is the community like, and then what are the tokenomics like? So that is our system that we use to evaluate cryptocurrencies. So should I kick us off since... Uh, yeah, kick us off, man, because I did something different for this show. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. So, so maybe we should start. That way people can get the meat from you and what they want to hear. Then, you know, if they hear me talking about They something. get the potatoes from yeah. you. Yeah, you go first. <laughs> All right, so... My cryptocurrency for this week is one that I actually bought quite a while ago. It has gone down in value. So I'm not, you know, trying to sell you on this uh, cryptocurrency, but I think it's an interesting one. And that is sand. Ah, sand's the hourglass. <laughs> but there's a lot of jokes about sand and its abundancy. <laughs> so let, let's hear it. Yeah. Well, this is limited sand because it's digital sand, Brian. So it's not okay all right brian looks very confused for those of you who can't see the video so sand is the native cryptocurrency of one of the metaverses the metaverse is called sandbox oh yeah so the purpose of sand is it's the official token of the sandbox metaverse and with the sand you can buy land in the metaverse so right now there are 166,000 lands that you can buy and they've said that there will never be more added. So no expansion ever. They have drawn that line in the on sand, the dirt. In the it's sand. So you're buying property on an island. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's not gonna be more of that island. Yeah. The current price for a plot in the sandbox is 3.5 Ethereum. So that's about give or take ten or eleven thousand dollars. Um so pricey, but if it's a limited quantity, you know, uh, could be good value depending if the sandbox takes off. Uh, on this land, what you're asking, why would I need land in the digital metaverse? On this land, you can create games. So if you want to create like a game, you can do that. You can create a social space where people hang out or do stuff. So maybe you create a concert venue or a museum or a coffee shop. And you can also create experiences. So you can host different experiences and you can actually charge money for people to do your experience or play your game or whatever it is. And they would pay you in sand. Mm. <laughs> A handful of sand. Handful of sand, yes. You can also buy characters, objects, accessories, all of that. So sand is really the token that powers this whole thing. Uh, the way that you can get sand is you can either buy it from an exchange or you can actually earn it by playing the game. So mm -hmm. say you're in the game and you do missions, they pay you in sand, you go use your sand to do experiences, things like that. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's another one, of, not, I wouldn't say another one of these, but it's, it's about getting people into the sand ecosystem. And once you get that big 
can of sand, then you use that to, to get more sand. Brian is mocking me here. And you uh, know what, Brian? I don't appreciate your mocking. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. When I hear sand is a payment, and uh, I, I think I think about the Sahara Desert. I don't know. For me, it's I wouldn't say it's comical, but you see where I'm going with this. It's just they should have chosen a better name for it because it is kind of yeah. funny to be like, hey, guys, I bought some sand over the weekend. I think it's going to be really valuable someday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you already get laughed at enough for being in this market right now and in this ecosystem. And the last thing I want to do is, really, you know, Thanksgiving. I talked to my, my family like, oh, by the way, I got a bunch of sand, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of money. And they're just sitting there like, yeah, whatever. Carve the turkey. Anyway. Yeah. So we will see who has the last laugh. Exactly. Um, the other thing you can do with sand, and you might be more interested in this, is you can actually stake it to earn rewards. And some of those rewards include a share of the revenue from all sand transactions in the game. Uh, it's like a dividend. Yes, exactly. You are investing your sand into the sand city, the sandbox. So that is one way that you can earn passive sand if you don't want to be playing in the metaverse. As a little side note, I have been playing around in this metaverse, and it's pretty fun. They've built some really cool games in it. Mm. They've also had some interesting experiences. I went to a Snoop Dogg concert in it, which was pretty fun. So awesome. yeah, uh, it, it's a pretty well thought out metaverse, and it's not even launched yet fully. So oh. I will give you a little background about the team. So uh, the Sandbox was founded in 2012 which is 10 years ago at this point, but it wasn't initially launched as a metaverse. It was actually a mobile game. So it had millions of users, millions of people were playing this mobile game just on their phone. And it was only recently that they decided to turn it into a metaverse. I'm sorry, what was the mobile game called? Sandbox. So the mobile game was Sandbox. Yep. So they oh. kind of pivoted from a super popular mobile game into creating a metaverse based on the game. And the game was also about buying land. And what was the uh, what was the economy of the mobile game? You know I'm I mean? not sure. I'm not sure. So I never played the mobile game, but it was a mobile game with similar characters. I'm just not sure about the economy of the mobile game back in the That's, day. I, I mean, not to derail you, but uh, as you know, I worked on a mobile game uh, last year. And so there's a lot of like interesting economics that go into the structure of these games. And so I'm kind of curious how much of that was brought over into this metaverse. But I'll do some research. Yeah, I think that so in the mobile game, it was you can buy characters, you can buy skins, all of that. I'm just not sure about the land component. I don't think that they had that back then because I don't think anyone believed in limited quantities of digital goods back then the way we do now. Yeah, especially if you don't have that NFT uh, layer, that blockchain layer, it's not something that you could really like, I mean, I guess you could, but most of these games are about those skins and about the rewards and what you earn and be able to use that in different ways, not necessarily the, you know, what you're actually walking on. Exactly. The, the state of it. But anyway, cool. That's exactly. interesting. So it was founded by two guys, Arthur Madrid and Sebastian Bourget. So Arthur is a longtime social gaming entrepreneur. He actually sold two software companies. One's called Wixie and the other one's called One Click Media. So he has been around technology for a while and has done a really good job, uh, had some successful exits. Sebastian spent 13 years growing different startups 
he also spent nine of those years in mobile gaming. So cool. experienced set of guys. So that's really he good. He weed for a second. That's the first thing I thought about when you said that. So <laughs> he was growing. Yeah, I was waiting for it. I was like, anyway, that's cool. So they got a good pedigree for, for game development. And, and that really matters. You know, some of these people have been doing this for so long. They really understand that market very well. So yeah. team is important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's already an established company. You know, they've been doing it for a long time for a decade now. So that's also encouraging. They're not trying to spin up a metaverse from scratch. So that's really good. Um, This is where I think the sandbox has its unique advantage, which is in its investors and partnerships. So it has 165 total partnerships. Wow. Okay. And some of those partnerships are with really big names. So let me know if you've heard of some of these names. Adidas. No. You've not heard of Adidas. Brian, Brian, Brian is yanking my chain. The Walking Dead. It sounds familiar. Is that a NFT? No, yeah, of course. Go on, please. Yes. yes. South China Morning Post. Never heard of them. So that is a really big publication in China. Uh, for some reason, we don't really get too much of it here but they don't just cover china stuff like they cover all sorts of world news this is one i know knowing you brian i know that you know this one and you've probably spent many many thousands of dollars on this one care bears oh now you've you've just touched my heart and warmed (laughs) it and melted it at the same time uh you know care bears are a commodity they are. And they're scarce. So that's all I got to say. <laughs> Brian is sitting in Brian is sitting in a house full of Care Bears. There are thousands of Care Bears behind him all staring at me right now. I'm a fluffy. What can I say? <laughs> uh, another one is the Smurfs. And Whoa. another one is Atari. And then the last one that's big name on here is Snoop Dogg. So, okay. So interesting. So Three partnerships you mentioned in a row all have to do with basically 80s retro cartoons and merchandise. Are they trying to play into that generation? What's they, the, uh... I think they are going, it's not the only thing they're doing, but they have those nostalgic brands. Yeah, it sounds like it. They're, they're trying to tap into something, which I think is a really cool in, in a marketing sense, because I mean, you know, we're about the same age. Maybe you're a little bit older or a little bit younger. I forget. Uh, but those are all things that, you know, if you were in the live in the 80s, you know, those are things you grew up on. There was cartoons, there was merchandise, and there is nostalgia associated with it. So I think that's pretty interesting. They're, they're going that, well, not just going that direction, but they're also recognizing that that could be valuable. Do you think it's just more about them getting as many partnerships as they want, or is there some more strategy behind this? I think it's, I mean, they have 165 partners. So the ones I just named are the big name brand ones. They have a bunch of other ones, but I think this is what will lead to the sandbox becoming a successful metaverse is because you can go do these different experiences from your favorite brands in a virtual immersive experience. So I told you, I went to a Snoop Dogg concert. Uh, The Walking Dead has its own land in the sandbox and they've done like a cool little horror game where you like actually play and like zombies attack you you fight them all of this stuff so it's really interesting i'm not sure what they do for care bear land i haven't explored that land i'll leave that up to you 
Well, yeah, I think I'll pass on that one too. But the, yeah, The Walking Dead, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a big brand. Uh, you know, a lot of people watch that. I'm not a big zombie guy, but you know, I was at the store recently and I saw a Walking Dead bourbon on sale and I almost bought it. And I was like, I don't know if I want to drink whiskey associated with, with zombieism. <laughs> but I think it may be like, you know, is it a, maybe a thing that, you know, Smurfs and Care Bears were probably owned by the same parent company and they just kind of got roped into the same thing or... So I don't see a lot of people like saying, oh, wow, Care Bears is here. I should join in. You know what I mean? When you talk about community and, and all these things, do you think that's a big draw for people? Or do you think it's more of like, these guys offered us a lot of money. They have a dying brand. that's not really relevant. <laughs> Let's just bring them on as a partner. It depends on who you are in terms of a demographic. I, I am past the Care Bear phase in my life, but maybe Care Bears are still super popular. We don't really know. Are they? I, yeah, you see, I've been out of the Care Bear loop for a long time, although I did see an episode of Pawn Stars where someone was selling a collection of Care Bears for a lot of money. So I guess there's also that Care Bear community out there who might actually care about these bears. When you say someone was selling them for a lot of money, are you just referring to yourself in the third person? I played the fifth. F- <laughs> F-I-F. I played the fifth. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, so... Those are the partnerships. I think that's a really unique advantage that other metaverses don't really have. Other metaverses have partnerships, but not quite as many and not with these big name brands. The other part that I think is unique to the sandbox is the community. So they have only launched in alpha. We're not even in beta yet. And in the alpha, which is in its second stage right now, they already have over 2 million registered users. Wow. Yeah. So- In alpha, which is bonkers, usually alphas are, you know, the super nerds who are there extra, extra early. Adopters, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of super nerds, 2 million. Wait, so what the number is, what's, how do you classify them? 2 million registered users. Registered users. So is that people who are holding the token or just? That's people who have registered to, with a profile in the sandbox. Got it, got it. So that doesn't really equate to investment it's just people who are it equates to interest exactly exactly so, it's still community yeah yeah so pretty big community even if they're in alpha stage this is i'm bringing this to you pretty early because we're still in alpha so that is the community in terms of users but then the developer community and i'm gonna put developer in quotation marks here it's really really interesting because they have created their own editor so that you can create NFTs and objects and all sorts of stuff for the metaverse. And they give it out for free so anybody can use it. It's called Voxel Editor. And mm-hmm. I played around with this and I actually did a little tutorial. They have tutorials on their YouTube channel if you guys want to check it out. Uh, and I tried to build like this little chocolate bunny that like does, does a little head bob thing. And it was actually really fun to like build it out of individual blocks in this little voxel editor. And I'm not tech savvy. You say that, but come on. I, I'm not tech savvy. And I was able, I, I don't know programming or anything like that. And I was able to build like this little virtual NFT. Uh, the cool thing is you can actually sell all of your wares in the sandbox store if they're approved. So once you build it, you send it to them and they just make sure that it's at a high enough quality. So they don't want you to just be sending a bunch of crap to their store, uh, which would like clog it up. So as long as it's high quality in terms of an NFT and you're an approved creator, you can sell your stuff 
in the sandbox. I love it. Maybe Robin might want to hear about that. That could be an interest, an entryway into it. Just make sure you're not building any lead-based NFTs or anything <laughs> a kid could swallow and choke on. Other no. than that, I think that's cool. I, I love it. Yeah. So that is community. And then last, I'm going to wrap up here with tokenomics and I'll run through these pretty quick. So $3.2 billion market cap. Very strong. Market rank is number 40. So it's in the top 50. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. Circulating supply, 1.1 billion. And the max supply is 3 billion. So they're about a third of the supply has been circulated. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, those are good numbers. Yeah. Uh, All-time low price was two cents when it was like, you know, before you could really purchase it. All-time high was $8. And the current price is $2.73. Yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you think? So I already bought some sands when it was first coming out and it was all hyped. So I bought it for $5. So I'm just holding on to my sand. I might stake it to get rewards and stuff. Um, I don't think I'll buy more sand as of yet, but I thought it was an interesting token, one that's being used in an economy currently, not, you know, with promises of a future economy, like you can currently yeah. use it. So there you go. That's sand. All right. There it is. Uh, Bargain has a lot of sand and we'll see if that sand can turn into a diamond. Yep. Get it while it's hot. Actually, no, it's, it's wait, sand turns into glass. Sorry. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> glass diamonds so glass that's my that's my token for uh this week what do you have for us brian oh that's a good one man thanks for thanks for that uh you know I, i've heard of sandbox but didn't know much about their token so you know i'm, I'm definitely sand curious and okay. i'll take yeah so once again thanks for that very insightful very good stuff and as i mentioned earlier i went in a different direction this time and so maybe our listeners might hate it maybe they'll love it i don't know We'll see what happens. So, as you know, last weekend, I took a trip across the Bay. I live in San Francisco. Uh, my co-host here lives in Berkeley. We'll just we'll put that out there. We'll dox ourselves. <laughs> and uh, I took the ferry across the Bay to meet up with them to have some beers and, and talk to all things crypto. Gr great time, by the way. Thanks again. And on the way there, one of the things you notice crossing from San Francisco, going into these ports of Alameda and Oakland is all of the shipping, big shipping ports, mm. a lot of containers. And you see these huge, huge boats stacked, sometimes, you know, five, 15 container boxes high for all these products, goods and services that travel all around the world. Yep. Right. And so I was thinking about that and how cool it is. And a lot of it is automated. You see these big cranes, you know, there's maybe like, you know, 20 people working at a time, which used to take a longshoreman or a stevedore crews of 150s to unload all this freight. So anyway, long story short, it's, it, it got me thinking about things and different applications of blockchain technology. And when we talk about logistics and this whole global economy, it sort of piqued my interest. And so I decided to cover a blockchain-based product that doesn't even have a token, Okay. Not an open blockchain. Interesting. So closed blockchain, private blockchain. Semi-closed, semi semi-open, semi but also not necessarily all autonomous either. 
And when I was looking at thinking about projects this week, I started reading about some things that were trending, some things were gaining, and you know, not to you know discount anything NFT related or DeFi related. I was just like, you know, we've done that. And so, and I've been thinking more about some of the world world uses for blockchain technology stuff that's going on. And so today I'm doing a company called TradeLens. Okay. So TradeLens is basically a platform that provides entities, the digital tools to share information and collaborate securely when it comes to global shipping. Hmm. So you think about the applications of blockchain in terms of that trust layer, that ledger, what would be a better use case than shipping logistics and tracking all of this stuff in the blockchain? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that has been a use case that I think has been brought up several times is the ability to track all the transactions of a given item. That's the ledger. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about something today that might be not very sexy, not very, very much like, oh, I want to get in and ape into this project, but also kind of bring up the point that what we talk about in terms of, you know, some of the speculation and some of these use cases, you know, that could be like two, three, four years down the line in terms of the play. Well, let's talk about what's going on right now and what people are doing. And you don't really hear about this sort of thing that much because it's not necessarily the sexiest thing. It's, it's basically supply chain logistics, which is you know, pretty boring. But this is an interesting uh, use case. So basically, TradeLens uh, was created to reduce friction and simplify the trading process. And so to just give you a high level, um, you ever read the book called The Box? I have not. So the, yeah, the box is a story about the evolution of global shipping using containers, these square boxes that you put on a boat, right? Uh, for a long time, people would have bulk freight that had to be unloaded by hand and put on a dock. Those were the longshoremen and the stevedores. All of a sudden, someone invented this box that can fit onto a boat, fill it with goods, and the automation of unloading it becomes that much more simple. It actually destroyed these longshoremen unions and destroyed that economy for them. Not a good thing. But the book called The Box basically connects that development with the expansion of globalization and global trade. Mm. Back in the day, uh, the, the BBC did a, a project based on this book where they put a GPS tracking device on a shipping container and tracked it for a year. And so you go onto their website and you could see where this container was at any time of the day as it moved around the world, moving products from port to port. So kind of cool. I so, have something to add to that, actually, yeah. which is, have you listened to the podcast Containers? No. Containers is a podcast about shipping containers. There we go. Talk about something that's so niche. So like it covers the entire history of containers. So they have one called Meet the Sailors. There's oh. one called The Ships, the Tugs in the Port, The <laughs> Hidden Side of Coffee, America's First Ships. And then there's one called The Lost Docks and then Robots. That's, a, that's what we're talking about. The Lost Docks was the decline of these uh, longshoremen and, and stevedore unions and automation, basically removing that need from the whole shipping economy. Yeah. Uh, let's take a look at it. This podcast actually makes shipping super, super interesting. It, it was like, I listened to it. I was like, why am I so interested in this? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but it was really interesting. It is, it is once you get past like that, uh, 
we're shipping stuff. It is very interesting and it's very um, important to the way we live our lives. TradeLens is taking that and building on a blockchain to basically add that layer of trust and keep track of transactions. Currently, its purpose is to make that process easier and frictionless. So it basically shares in the millions of events and documents participating uh, companies and countries are involved in with that trade process. So wherever you are, what you're trading, it's all on this blockchain if you want to get involved. So members, they share information, they share data, uh, it's secured on the blockchain, allowing for collaboration, collaboration, excuse me. And it's not anonymous. So each one of these actors are uh, basically known as trust anchors and they have cryptid identities. So they're not anonymous, but they're not um, you know, fully out there, but they are able to be tracked. So one of the advantages they have is the two companies that built TradeLens are IBM and Maersk. Oh, okay. So we all know IBM, obviously. Yep. Mayor, Mayors, M-A-E-R-S-K, is one of the biggest shipping lines in the world. And I saw their containers on the way to Alameda, stacked yeah. high. And, uh, you know, they're a container shipping vessel operator uh, between 1996 and 2021. They operated in 130 countries with 83,000 employees. Yeah, it's so, a big company. I, I've heard about them. Yep. Yeah, you probably, yeah, you definitely heard of them. Um, annual revenue about $40 billion, uh, 622nd largest company in the world. And they were founded in 1904. They're Danish. Okay, so they have an advantage of being already, you know. <laughs> they have the advantage of being Danish. <laughs> Danish, yes. And, and, and being just very old, <laughs> old Danishes. So, you know, they've been around for a long time. They basically have been controlling this, this industry, and now they're applying blockchain te technology to it. And their team, I mean, we got Maersk and IBM. Yeah. One company founded in 1905, one company founded in 1911. So, yeah. So, we're not, it's basically the Harlem Globetrotters uh, of technology and shipping coming together. Uh, in 2019, the platform covered nearly half the world's shipping of uh, cargo containers. So, half the world's shipping is involved in this blockchain. Yeah. I feel like this is more of like a pitch deck to invest in Maersk more than anything else, right? You can't invest in the token, but this is a really interesting thing showing that this company is doing really innovative things and is already huge. So I'm sure that they already are, you know, have lots of investment behind them, but. Yeah. Well, Maersk public, IBM obviously public. Yeah. Either way, if you want to invest in, in, in Maersk or IBM, if they become maybe 90% of all of the world's shipping on this platform, that's going to be a good investment. So I think all blockchain investments don't have to do with buying a token or buying an NFT. Sometimes you can invite in the companies providing the services that drive the world's economy. Awesome. I love it, Brian. Thank you uh, for bringing this. I feel like one question that I get asked all the time in our workshops is, you know, I've heard so much about blockchain, cryptocurrency and all this, but what are like the real world use cases of this? People say this is going to change the world. And I always, I give a few examples, but I kind of struggle to give enough examples for those kind of crypto skeptics. And I think this is a brilliant, brilliant example of how blockchain technology is being applied to something that affects us every single day. And it's it, a it, very good point. And it's not something that we really are going to see. And we've talked about this before that eventually this whole the blockchain of technology isn't going to be something that's like, you know, 
on the front and center of everybody's marketing material. It's just something that happens in the background. Yeah. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of like when you buy a product, you don't go, oh, oh my God, this company had a website and I purchased this on the World Wide web, right? Yeah. Like we don't, we don't talk like that anymore, anymore because it's just normal. It's part of our day-to-day lives. Yeah. So someday we won't be like, and they use a blockchain. Can you imagine? Right, exactly. Ooh. You get, <laughs> I can see like an old prospector on the campfire. Like, they had blockchains. Yeah. You're, like, You're like, back in my day, we yeah. didn't have no blockchain. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was a cool, uh, a cool story. I'm glad you guys, uh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed the, the relevance of it. Love it. All right. So if you guys have any questions about this episode, you want to hear more about shipping containers or sand, we're bringing it very basic this episode. Yes. Remember that you can always write to us. That is questions at cryptosafari.us. And until next time, keep your pockets full of sands and your shipping containers full of pockets. (laughs) 